Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Church, good to be with you again. It's Pastor Jim. I am thankful for you and thankful for the chance that we get to worship online as well as in person in this strange season. But as you know, as the world, even though the world is locked down, the spirit is on the loose, and we are continuing to do the business of ministry and the work of the church. We baptized Alani last Sunday, and that was a beautiful event. We baptized, we baptized a lot of people in the last six months, uh, given everything that's going on. So I know that there are some of you out there who are who are waiting uh, to be baptized, you can let us know if you want to schedule a baptism. We use uh, swimming pools. We have a baptismal at the church. We can go down to the beach. Let us know if you want to do a baptism because we uh, we love celebrating that with you and uh, placing that marker in your personal spiritual journey and memory. Speaking of uh, the activities of the church that are continuing to go on, next Sunday is Communion Sunday. And so if you are worshiping at home, God bless you if that's how you're doing it. Uh, make sure that you're prepared with bread and grape juice or wine, whatever you use, uh, be ready. We'll, uh, we've got a little instructional video we can show you of how to do communion in your home, but be prepared for that next Sunday because that is coming. And for those who worship with us in the parking lot at 9 a.m., we'll have communion elements here uh, which do not do not get passed around. So they're all separate. They're uh, safe and, and so forth. We're following all the guidelines. So we will we'll have communion prepared and ready for you here at the church. And that is what's coming. Today, we're going to round out our series of studies in the book of Revelation, and Revelation ends well, uh, because the world ends well, because Jesus is still on the throne at the center of the universe. And so uh, let's, uh, let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll get into Revelation 21 and the conclusion of this great book. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you, the, that you love us and that you bless our ministries, even in times where the world feels short of resources. Uh, I thank you that you have uh, you have all the resources that you need. Your heart uh, still beats for those who are lost and in need, and you are still breathing into and empowering the church to do ministry. God, use us as your ambassadors and send us out into the world. Use us as your missionaries and reach people who don't yet know you. Uh, use us as uh, the vehicles of your love that people might feel how much they are cared for, even when it feels like a lot of the world doesn't care. God, bless the ministries of our church that they might glorify you and draw attention to you and not us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in recent weeks or if you've been following along on the podcast at reallife.la, you now have a pretty good sense of my read of this book, the book of Revelation. We're at the end of the first century. Rome is persecuting the Christians. In 65 AD, Emperor Nero, the Caesar in Rome, uh, began persecuting Christians. In 70 AD, Rome moves in on Jerusalem, 
destroys the city, levels the temple. The Jewish people are scattered, and the Jewish Christians are scattered throughout the Mediterranean. John, the disciple of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, lands in a city called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And there, John begins to uh, shepherd a church, a church that the Apostle Paul had uh, begun uh, to bring into being a few years before. And John is now shepherded and cared for this people through the course of most of the first century. But Emperor Domitian is now Caesar, and he wants to persecute Christians out of existence because he wants to be called Lord and God. And the Christians insist on calling this guy named Jesus of Nazareth Lord and God. So the Romans snatched John up out of his church and out of his home, and they drop him off on the island of Patmos, separated from his church to die. There he must have called out to God, praying for his people, and God gave him a vision of things that Jesus wanted to communicate to the churches, to Ephesus and the churches around there. John writes down the revelation and sends it to his churches, probably on one of the passing ships that stopped at the island uh, and then went into the city of Ephesus. The letter is a piece of conspiratorial literature threatening to undermine Rome. It promises that Jesus is still in charge, Jesus is still the king, Jesus is still Caesar, and the Caesar who's in Rome is going to fall. In fact, all of Rome is going to fall. And so Revelation then tells the story of the destruction of Rome and the, the triumph of the kingdom of God in very symbolic images. And that's because it's, uh, it's conspiratorial literature that would have gotten any Christian peasant killed for carrying it around. But because it's filled with symbols and images, most people wouldn't understand it. But a first century Jewish Christian would recognize all the imagery from the Hebrew scriptures, would rep rec uh, recognize the cultural ref uh, references to the events of Rome. And so uh, in that sense, Rome is this, excuse me, in that sense, Revelation is this fascinating study that we get to unpack. So it tells the stories in the opening of a scroll in the hands of Jesus. It tells the stories about the fall of Jerusalem, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, the day after they worshiped the Roman volcano god, and then eventually the, uh, the battle with the Parthians, where the Parthians stopped the Romans from spreading, uh, and eventually the promise that Rome will one day fall. Rome will see that its end is coming. And that's how the book of Revelation is, is laid out. You've probably gotten versions of the book of Revelation that come from a guy named John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s. Uh, and you may not know that name, but you may know the name Hal Lindsey, who... Uh, propagated this view in the 70s, and then Tim LaHaye in the 90s, and some modern preachers at big churches today, uh, which take the events of Revelation and say these are literally physically going to happen in the world, probably in the near future, better get ready. But that's not how Christians have read this letter throughout most of history. Uh, a lot of Christians have just seen this book as a big mystery, uh, but many of them has, have seen in this the telling of the story of Jesus victory over the kingdoms of this earth, and the promise that one day we will be reunited with Jesus face to face in the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. And that's what Revelation 21 is about. And today we're going to read from Revelation 21, the most beautiful chapter in Revelation, one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. So open in your uh, Bible to Revelation 21, and we're going to again unpack some of the images and symbols in there. Uh, and if, if Reading all this symbolic imagery has been a lot for you to take in. Don't feel bad. Revelation has always been a hard book to take in. Uh, I remember talking about this book 
when my daughter was, was a little tiny girl and I, I made some reference to Jesus opening the seals uh, of the scroll to tell the events of history. And she got this nervous look on her face. And I said, honey, what's wrong? And she goes, how did he open the seals? And it took me a second, but I realized when she heard the word seal, she pictured a marine mammal. And I was like, what is Jesus doing to the poor sweet baby seals at the beach? No, 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 no. Revelation is confusing on more levels than I even realized. Uh, but where there's, some, there's some more images in Revelation 21 uh, that we're going to unpack that actually, actually are very beautiful. So follow along with me in Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, S-E-A, no longer any ocean. Throughout the Bible, the ocean represents chaos. Uh, in the story of creation, God brings land out of the waters. A wind moves over the waters and begins the act of creation. In the end, when everything is ordered, there is no longer any chaos. Finally, everything has been stabilized. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this was always the hope. The Jewish people always wanted a kingdom for all the way through the Hebrew scriptures. They wanted to be free from slavery in Egypt. They wanted to maintain the kingdom of David. They wanted to be free from slavery in Babylon. They wanted Jesus to throw off Herod and Caesar and Rome and establish a new kingdom. They wanted Jerusalem to be their home and their palace. That's what they had been longing for. I saw uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Uh, one of the, the great things I get to do as a pastor is I get to preside at weddings. Uh, and you've, been, you've probably been to a wedding or two. You've seen these beautiful gatherings. I get the best seat in the house. I get to stand right there at the front with the bride and the groom and watch them make their promises of love to one another. But there's a, a, a moment in the life of the church, in the life of, in the, in the uh, experience of a wedding that I think the, the pastor sees unlike anyone else uh, because of where we stand. There's a moment where the doors at the back of the room swing open and the bride appears framed by the doorway. And you can hear the groom take a deep breath. And in fact, all the breath goes out of the room. Right? The bride has arrived. And that's the image here in Revelation. The day's going to come where God creates a new heaven and a new earth, where God's peace will reign for eternity. And when you catch a glimpse of that, it's like the, the bride appearing in the doors where all the breath goes out of the room. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the promise of eternity. If your body is tired from cancer and your mind is tired from work, and your heart is tired from no one understanding you. The day is coming where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and all tears will be wiped away. One of the best promises in the Bible. That is a reality. That's not a, that's not a symbol or an image. That's a reality. And it's coming for we who believe in Jesus. 
He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Remember, Jesus on the cross says, it is, it is finished, right? The, the work of salvation is finished. The redemption of humanity is finished. And we look forward to the day where we get to hear Jesus say those words again. It is done. It is finished. Redemption of all creation has finally happened. That's the promise uh, we look forward to. And he uses here in uh, the Greek, he uses some interesting words. He says, uh, I am the, the uh, beginning and the end. Alpha and omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So it's I'm the A to Z is what he's saying. But the beginning and the end are interesting words. In Greek, beginning is the word arche. And arche is not, is not a static thing like the, the, the starting line at a race where the, the runners bend down. An arche is a thing that does the starting. It's more like the starter pistol that fires and makes a noise and gets everything going. I am the, the thing that started things off. I am the creator is what that means. I am the, the one who designed it all from the beginning. From the word arche, we get architect. I am the architect of the universe. I am the architect of your soul. I designed you and created you from the very beginning. And then he uses the word for end, he uses the word telos. And telos is a much more rich word than end. It's not just finished, like, you know, the end and the last frame of an old movie. The, 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 the telos is the, the completed design of the way something was supposed to become. It's when you, when you snap the last piece into place and you realize it's complete. The ancient Greeks talked about the telos in an early form of DNA theory. They, they said, Aristotle would say, the telos of an acorn is an oak tree. The design for what it's to become is written inside of it. And when it reaches it, it it's completed its telos. It's reached its full intention, its design. And if it becomes an oak tree, it's done it well. It's done it correctly. So this is what Jesus is saying. I am the architect that built you, that designed you. And I am the, the telos, the completion of you. I am the, the blueprint for what you are to become. When you are finished, you will look like me. When I am done with you, you will be a little Jesus-like person walking around. I am the architect and the blueprint. I designed you in the beginning. And when I'm done with you, you're going to be like me. He is a, a sculptor carving sculptures of himself out of us. We're the marble that he's chiseling away with. And when he's done with us, we're a sculpture that looks like him. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise that all the, the brokenness of this world that I have carried in my heart, that I have created and spread in the world, all the mess that I've made, one day will just be sweepings on the floor of the, the beautiful creation Jesus was working on. I mean, can you picture that? I remember as, as a younger man realizing that I didn't have good control over my words and I didn't know how to say things rightly. And, and your words can leave marks on people that you can't see for a long, long time. I remember talking to a woman who was in her late 80s when I was talking to her and she remembered as a little girl being left on the, the doorstep of a boarding school by her parents where she knew she'd have to stay for many months without seeing them. And as she talked about that, as, as an 86-year-old, she got tears in her eyes, right? A memory that was 
decades and decades old, almost a century old, still brought tears to her eyes. Because this world leaves marks on us that not everybody can see. And what Jesus promises in this passage is, yeah, I'm still working on you. You're leaving marks on this world that you're going to regret later on. You're doing things to yourself, to the people around you, to the world around you, that one day you're going to look back on and say, I wish I hadn't done that. Jesus says, don't fear. You are clay in my hands, and I am shaping out of you something beautiful. You are God's masterpiece. He's just not done with you yet. And the person sitting next to you, the person you can think of from work who you really don't like, that person may well be God's masterpiece too. And God has not set us free to judge people who are being made out of a different kind of material than we are. God, the potter, can choose whatever clay he wants and mold it as he chooses to. He doesn't set us free to go around shaming and scolding people for the fact that God is still working on them too. The beauty of this this passage, the promise is that one day we will be complete. One day we will reach our telos. And in that world, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And all tears will be wiped away. I mean, you can see why. Uh, And then he says, verse 21, uh, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. He's describing now uh, Jerusalem. He's describing now the new city that's coming because the, the Hebrew people had always waited for Jerusalem, had always waited for their kingdom. And in 70 AD, the Romans trashed it. So when he talks about a new Jerusalem coming, he's speaking their love language. That They're still wondering, wait a minute, can we function without Jerusalem? Can we function without our temple? That's where God lived. They destroyed God's house. That makes it look like Rome is stronger than God. What do we do with that? And John promises the day is coming where there's a new Jerusalem. And now he's going to describe it. Verse 21, the 12 gates in the city were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. You ever heard a reference to the pearly gates? Uh, tell jokes about how you show up and St. Peter's waiting at the pearly gates for you. This is where that reference comes from. It says that the day will come where they see the new Jerusalem and all the gates are made of pearl. It's actually a reference to the real old temple of Jerusalem, the one in the first century that Rome knocked down, the one in which Jesus would have worshipped. Jerusalem had 12 gates around it, the 12 gates of Jerusalem, and it was impenetrable. It was a city up on a hill. People could attack it from all sides, but they'd have to fight uphill, and the, the gates could not... Uh, be penetrated. It wasn't until Rome actually starved them out in 70 AD that they were able to get inside the city because otherwise those gates would not come down. They see Jerusalem with 12 gates now and they're they're gates made of pearl. The gates not only are are impenetrable, they're invaluable. God has restored Jerusalem and it is perfectly well protected on every side. But now there's going to be a twist. Watch this. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Lamb, again, is a reference to Jesus, who is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sacrificial Lamb who died on the cross for our sins, so that when we believe in him, everything we've ever done wrong, all that brokenness that we've brought into the world are taken onto the cross and get what are 
they get what it deserve they get what they deserve our sins get their punishment on the cross and, and so Jesus is referred to as the the sacrificial lamb the lamb who takes away the sins of the world but in this in this new Jerusalem now remember the temple was God's house it was the center of Jewish worship in this new Jerusalem that's coming there's still no temple wait a minute what happened we needed our temple back the Romans tore it down we have to build it back again uh, back centuries before when uh, Babylon tore it down. We rebuilt it again. We need to rebuild it one more time. Jesus, speaking through John, says, no, no, no. In the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. And at first, if you were a, a Jewish person you were reading this, you might think, uh, there, there must be a, a problem here. We're, we're supposed to have our, our temple back. Um, this is actually another beautiful promise in the book of Revelation. The, the day will come where our relationship with Jesus is so close that he doesn't live over there in that, that house that we built. He's with us all the time. What Jesus really wants from you and I more than anything else is a relationship with us where we walk with him every single day, not where we just go to the building where God lives on Sunday mornings for an hour, but that we realize that Jesus walks beside us and he sits with us and he shares our meals with us and he watches over us as we sleep. Jesus is always with us and wants to invite us into a daily walk with him where we converse with him and listen to him and follow his guiding and listen and uh, repeat and uh, share his teachings with others. Jesus wants that kind of daily intimacy with us where God is no longer cordoned off over there in a building that we call a church. Now, this is a little bit radical for people who have settled into a normal habit of occasional church attendance because it feels like it's kind of a good thing. Realize God wants us to get to the day where there are no more pastors, where there are no more Sunday school teachers, where there is no more Bible study because we are intimately wrapped in a relationship with him that goes on for eternity in the new kingdom, in the new Jerusalem. The hope is that one day we will be so intimately wrapped up with him, we no longer need any intermediaries. We tend to trust pastors and churches and structures and let them do all the, the work of religion for us, and that way we put it on a shelf and kind of ignore it, but that's, that's not really what Jesus has in mind. Um, I remember being on a mission trip down in Mexico uh, many years ago, <clears throat> and uh, we were uh, driving around in a van. There were 14 students and a volunteer adult that was helping with me, and I was driving the van, and we got a flat tire on the streets of Tijuana uh, late in the afternoon. And we got out, and we looked at the flat tire on this van, and we looked around, and we weren't real clear who to call or where to go or who to ask for help, and, uh, and it, was getting, it was getting dark. The sun was going down. And we were a little bit nervous about the prospect of being stuck on the streets of Tijuana in the middle of the night. And finally, my adult volunteer who was with me was stressed uh, to the very edge. And he said to me, you're a pastor. You're a religious person. Do something. So I took up an offering. Pastors are not always helpful. Uh, obviously, we survived and made it home. But the point is... It's not good to put all of our faith in the pastor. It's not good to put all of our uh, re religiosity in the church building. It's not good to put all of our belief in some community out there that we see on occasion. 
Jesus wants an intimate daily relationship with us where we never walk away from him. That's what eternity will look like. And that starts actually back here in this life. That starts now. And yes, in the meantime, we need to gather together in uh, the community that we call the church. And we need Bible studies so that we know God's word well. And we need teachers who teach us and counselors who guide us. We need help and support. But the ultimate vision is an eternal, uninterrupted relationship with Jesus. And that starts today. And if you've never done that before, if you've maybe settled into a habit of church participation that doesn't go that deep, take that step today. Say in your heart, Jesus, I want this to be an everyday thing with you. I want to commit myself to you and not just casually look at you, glance at you now and then. I want a a serious daily walk with you where I I learn your word and I I follow your guidance and I obey your teachings. If you've never done that before, do it today, and that's the day you become a Christian. Don't let today slip by. What a critical, life-changing decision to make. Don't let another day slip by without making that decision right now. Jesus calls us into a, into a deep, lasting relationship with him for eternity in a Jerusalem where there is no more temple. He goes on, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. In other words, God provides everything uh, that the people need for the rest of eternity. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Um, the, the image here of a city where there is no more night. Uh, picture, picture ancient Jerusalem, the city in this ancient world belonging to this little growing kingdom surrounded by much bigger kingdoms, Assyria and Babylon and Persia, Rome, the great kingdoms around it. It's this this little vulnerable population. And they built this capital on a hill with this city with its 12 gates and its strong walls. When does a city most particularly need to keep the gates closed? At night. At night where it's vulnerable, where people can sneak up on it. You need you need gates that are closed and locked at night because at night there's darkness and threats. Jesus promises the day will come where you live in a new Jerusalem where he is with you every single minute. You don't have a a church building to go to because he is with you all the time. And the gates of the city are always left open because there are no more threats. You no longer go through seasons where you feel vulnerable, where you're not sure you can provide for your family where you you don't know what people out there are going to do because the world seems so crazy. All of that, all of that is going to come to an end. And you'll live in a place where it's so comfortable and safe, you just leave the door open all the time. I remember when I was in uh, college, I uh, lived in um, a house uh, in Berkeley uh, near the university with uh, some of my friends uh, who went to my church. And uh, there were, I don't know, maybe eight or 12 rooms in the house and different members of my college fellowship group from church all lived in the same house together. And uh, at the front of the house, there was a staircase going up, a stone staircase going up and a, a door. And over the arch of the doorway was uh, purple wisteria. And so there were purple flowers that fell down all around the doorstep 
uh, almost all year long. You know, the Bay Area was uh, generally temperate, and we had this beautiful flowers. And because the, the house that I lived in became this kind of hotbed of activity for the church. We had Bible studies in there. We had uh, we took in a homeless guy who lived with us for a while. We uh, had all kinds of uh, Sunday afternoon waffle bakes. Uh, it was really just kind of the hub of activity for my college group. And because there was so much traffic uh, in and out, we generally just left the front door open all the time because our friends would come and go and come and go all day long. And rather than having the door uh swing open and closed all day long and, you know, interrupt our studies or more to the point naps. We just left the door open. And so I, I have a very clear visual in my mind of walking up those stone steps um, through just a scattering of purple flowers and into a door that was almost always open, knowing that there was love and friendship inside. And I remember, I remember what that felt like. It was a unique kind of freedom. And that's the promise of eternity, that you're headed on a journey towards a place where the doors are always left open because there's no more night. What a, what a beautiful chapter this is. What a beautiful collection of promises. And then it goes on in this place where there's nothing left to defend or lock up or hide or keep secret. It says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, and this is the, the great promise, the great closing word that in this city, uh, nothing pure, impure will go. And that means you will no longer be impure. You'll be able to walk in and out of the city freely because everything and everyone in the city is just good to the core. In Berkeley, we could leave our door open because back then, you know, nobody had a computer to steal. We didn't have a TV. Nobody even had smartphones back then. If you came in wanting to be a, a burglar in my house back then, the most expensive thing I had was a typewriter, which would be great if you were a criminal who was also working on your first novel, which in Berkeley is probably not unheard of. But we could leave it open because there was not really that much to steal. In the new Jerusalem, in the kingdom that's coming, the doors are always open because everyone is good to the core, including you. No matter who you are or how you've lived or where you've been, God will bring you to that telos, that conclusion, where you are so Christ-like in your nature that you spend every single minute of your life with him. That's the promise of eternity. That's what we're being invited to. Now, as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, you see this gorgeous promise of things to come. I've heard skeptics say, Christians just hang heaven out like a carrot on a stick to try to trick people into their religion. It's all just manipulation. It's just psychology. People have deep desires for safety and peace and love, and you're just promising it like a carrot on a stick with heaven. If, if they believe long enough through their lives, then they get to go to your paradise. I think very much the opposite is true. If heaven satisfies the longing of longings of our hearts, that doesn't prove that it's made up. That proves that it's real. The God who made you knows how he made you. He knows what he designed you for. He knows the longings that he put in your heart to point towards him. Our longings for heaven are not a deception. They're a reality as sure as hunger points us towards food and thirst points us towards water. Our hope points us towards heaven. And it's not because heaven is a fiction. It's because heaven is a reality. 
God has made us to long for him in a way that we are not satisfied until we find him. The great French mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal put it this way, describing the, the need that we have in our heart for God. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty print and trace. There's this sense that we once knew happiness and perfection, and it's gone, but we still long for it. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are. But nothing can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and unchangeable object. In other words, by God himself. You were made for heaven, and nothing can satisfy that desire but heaven itself. Nothing can satisfy that desire but Jesus himself. And you may spend your life chasing after things that give you only temporary satisfactions to find out in the end you lived life wrong. Make the right decision today. Turn and invite Jesus to come in and to begin to fill those desires, to articulate those desires, to help you pursue those desires in healthy and loving ways. Because if you do, if you make that decision today, if you commit or recommit yourself to Jesus today, you enter with us into a journey that goes on through a life that gets increasingly redeemed until the day where we together approach a city where purple flowers blow past a white door that seems almost useless because it's always open. Thank God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this vision of what's to come. And I pray that we would prepare our hearts for it, that we would be ready for the day we stand in front of you where we meet you again. And you judge all who have lived. I thank you that for we who have believed in you and your death for us on the cross, you have prepared an eternity that is better than anything we could imagine. I thank you that you long to be in relationship with us every day. And I ask that we would pursue that wholeheartedly now by the power of your spirit. Set us free for the world that's to come as it begins to shape, take shape in our hearts even now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you all. I'll see you again soon. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.